back on the Fan Morning Show, Sportsnet 590. The Fan Blue Jays win a series, a one series. You can say it both ways against the Dodgers. It's a series victory. There you go. We will keep the uh, ones and ones so no one's confused. I mean, it's, yeah, it's like chemistry and physics. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> Get them a little mixed up every now and then. Off day for them as they head back home. A happy plane ride to the city facing the Angels over the next three days. A reminder that we have all the games on Sportsnet 590, the fan. And Sunday's game is a 12 o'clock start. So set your calendars, get your dials ready to go because you can hear Ben Shulman, Blue Jays broadcaster at Sportsnet 590, the fan joining us. How's it going this morning, Ben? Hey, I'm doing great. Appreciate you guys having me on. We appreciate the early morning radio hit. You are a grinder and we respect that very much. Um, okay, so big series victory against the Dodgers. Uh, you say Kikuchi are excited uh, storyline this morning um, as a staple to this rotation, what he's been able to do consistently this season. And I know that um, John Schneider t- talked about that last game and gave him a lot of praise, but it just seems like a guy that's really wanting to pitch for his spot in the rotation, doesn't want to get booted out into the bullpen. And I think that he certainly has maybe claimed that spot and, and been one of the most consistent forces. Um, watching you say Kikuchi last night when he's put together this season, where's your confidence level that he's like the real deal and he's back to full form? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty high. Uh, I think, you know, it's, it's been a while now, but if you always think back to last year, like I, I didn't think at many times yesterday that Yusei Kikuchi looked his best. He was, you know, had a couple of bats where he fell behind a lot and was missing. And last year that completely unraveled into five run innings and walking four people mm-hmm. in a row and stuff like that. And it, there's just so much better of an ability to rein it in, I think, this season and really, you know, get back to, to what he needs to be doing and throwing strikes. And pretty much as long as he's not throwing a ton of balls or leaving a bunch of pitches over the middle of the plate, he's really hard to hit because he's a lefty who throws in the mid-90s and has two really big breaking balls. So it, it's been a lot of fun watching Kikuchi, I think, you know, really return to form and, you know, arguably pitch the best he's ever pitched. Uh, in the major leagues. And yesterday was uh, another great game for him where uh, he manages to keep the ball in the ballpark and obviously keep the Blue Jays in the game until the offense uh, bursts out for, for the Whit Merrifield homer and kind of puts it away. So what's like the, what sparked this? Like what has been the key? What has been the difference for Kikuchi? Uh, you know, we heard a lot about how he put a lot of work in the off season. He threw a lot of, uh, a lot of innings uh, in spring training uh is there something that we can identify is there something that we know is there something that he or something that clicked for him uh that has put him in this position where he's regained that confidence and he can throw that pitch that fastball uh with the velocity that he can is is there something that you can pinpoint as to the difference for him this year as opposed to last i think it's a a couple things i think the offseason work you mentioned is part of it uh, I, I think that the, you know, I, I think it's an oversimplification to say the pitch clock has done everything for him, but I don't think it hurts that he has to work with a little bit quicker of a pace and there's less time to dwell on the pitch that was just thrown and, and think about that. And you kind of just have to focus and get back on the mound and fire again. And they made some adjustments to his breaking ball too. Uh, he throws, you know, a slider that is maybe a bit harder and moves a little bit less, a little bit closer to, you know, what people would think of as, as a cutter. 
Uh, and yesterday, I mean, when he got into trouble missing in the strike zone or missing outside of the strike zone, he, would, he wouldn't throw a bunch of fastballs. He was throwing a lot of sliders. So I, I think that he feels really comfortable with that pitch, too. I, I think it's, it's kind of a mix of a couple different things, and it's all come together uh, to allow Kikuchi to be the best version of him that we've seen since he came over to Major League Baseball. All right, so he gets uh, over 100 pitches um, allowed to go a little longer in the outing than he had been lately, um, leaving you to the bullpen. So I I wonder where you're at with the highs and lows of this bullpen. We saw a couple uh, late leads blown in this series and in this road trip, um, but then you've seen really great outings from someone like Jay Jackson. Um, And, and, I mean, that's been a really, really great storyline to follow, and I think he's starting to win the hearts of uh, Toronto Blue Jays fans. But the highs and lows of this bullpen, and I guess leading towards next Tuesday's trade deadline, if that's maybe the biggest point of emphasis to add. Yeah, I I think it's a pretty big one. Uh, For me, at least, you know, I I would put it right up there. I think every single playoff team is going to – or playoff hopeful team is going to add to their bullpen. I, I think to a certain extent that's how it works. And for a long time, the Blue Jays were giving their bullpen really difficult situations that has taxed a lot of them. I actually think that their bullpen, as it is, is pretty solid. I know it did not have the greatest week uh, of its season, but I think for a lot of the season, the bullpen was as consistent as anything that the Blue Jays had going on. But they've worked them a ton. Uh, You know, a guy like Eric Swanson has worked a ton. So has Tim Meza. Uh, You know, Trevor Richards has thrown uh, just a lot more innings and a lot more leverage innings than I think a lot of people expect him to at this point in the season. So I I do think that that's a big area for them to add. You know, if it's one guy, then maybe someone, uh, you know, that can help out in in the seventh or eighth inning. But there's also a possibility, I think, that they grab, you know, maybe two guys that are a little bit more middle of the pack in the bullpen just to provide some more innings and, and just give a couple guys some extra rest because there's a chance that Chad Green comes back healthy after, you know, a couple more rehab starts and he can pitch in some seventh and eighth innings for them if he's pitching well too. Yeah, they're about to go 17 in 17, so uh, pretty good, pretty important to have depth and uh, have people ready to rumble when it's their time. We're talking to Ben Shulman of Sports on 590, the fan, of course. So if we're talking trade deadline, I'm going to give you three buckets, uh, a need, a want, and a luxury. So if you're going to add something in each of those buckets, where do you put your pieces? Okay, they need uh, they need bullpen. Um, I, I do think that everyone needs bullpen, but they I, I think they need bullpen. Uh, I think they want a right-handed bat mm. that can play uh, either some second or some outfield or some both that can mix in. Uh, they did actually have a very good offensive road trip, but I still think that uh, they want that, even though the offense is starting to to turn for the better a little bit recently. And then I'd say you know a kind of like fifth sixth starter that can also swing to the bullpen or has options to go to the minors i think that's a luxury um you know it would be nice for them to have another starter but i don't think that it's absolutely necessary for them uh and they're incredibly expensive to pick up so i i would say need bullpen want that and the the starter swingman or or the starter slash buffalo starter is the luxury uh, the luxury item before he was taken off the market uh, league-wide was Shohei Otani. Uh, apparently, uh, yeah. he will not be moved, according to Tom Verducci. He will also not pitch on Friday night, and you have the call, so how miffed are you with mm. that? 
I I am honestly like when that came out yesterday, <laughs> I if I wasn't so tired from the uh, the game at one forty the night before. The things I was going to say about the people of Detroit not having a roofed stadium right. in Detroit, like that's just, it's just ridiculous. The weather's been the same there since humans have lived in the city of Detroit and they don't have a roof and it ruins it for all of us. But uh, no, it'll still be awesome to see Shohei, obviously. I think it would have been, you know, really, really special to see him pitch there. But hey, maybe the good news is if the Angels are keeping him, maybe they think that they're going to re-sign him and that would uh, give more opportunities for Blue Jays fans in the future uh, to see him pitch against them, hopefully. Yeah, uh, that might be that might be the case. I think the take was, at least for me, is that, you know, maybe there's a less likely scenario where you have to go through Shohei Otani, which could, could be a good thing with, for the Toronto Blue Jays, although we would have liked to see him or the Blue Jays try to go through him on Friday night for sure. Are you little are you a little disappointed, excuse me, that he won't move? Like did you want to see that enhance the race here with the playoffs or are you into the Angels storyline like Ailish is? She was definitely uh, banging the drum for the Angels wanting to see them have success with Shohei Otani where I kind of wanted to see him move on and be sort of that luxury item for at least someone. Yeah, I was interested in in the possibility of of him being like a rental somewhere and seeing a team that's really unlikely to have Shohei in a long-term situation have him like a Baltimore Orioles or something like that and and think about what that would kind of look like. As long as the Angels stay in it though, I I don't I'm not like mad at it. I just want him to be in a race. And the Angels have at least played well enough right now to be in and around the playoff picture. I I do, you know, Mike Trout is one of my favorite players I've ever watched play too. And I would like to see him have a chance to make the playoffs for the first time since 2011. So uh, I, I, I would be interested if the angels keep playing well, I don't have like the most enormous amount of faith in the angels to keep playing well, just because we haven't seen it in so long, but if they can hang around that, I'm not that mad at it. If they drop out of the race in two weeks, then it'll be kind of a bummer uh, that Shohei Otani is just going to spend another half season mm-hmm. playing, you know, more non-meaningful baseball before he becomes, you know, a Dodger or whatever he's going to be long-term. Yeah, they made some late-night additions, Lucas Giolito and uh, Lopez from the White Sox. So they're trying to they're trying to do something, and uh, I'm yeah, kind of hoping for true. a little bit of buzz, um, nonetheless. Okay, so George Springer, um, I'm. <laughs> I don't think I've been too hard on him, but I've certainly been bringing up the point that he's had a pretty bad road trip. Um, it didn't seem like he was very comfortable there at Dodger Stadium. He obviously hasn't been producing at the plate. He had that one day off um, as well. Just uh, wrapping this up to a bad stretch for George Springer, he's going to be able to find his form or maybe something a little bit more um, that we need to keep eyes on moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you know it's enough for me to say that it's going to be like, the rest of the season is going to be a problem. It is concerning because Springer obviously had that tough start to the year. And then really for, you know, the better part of two months after that, put up pretty much George Springer numbers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thought was he has to keep doing that and maybe even a little bit extra because with that tough start he had to the season, he still had a lot to get back to his, you know, original production that the Blue Jays are expecting out of him, which is, you know, a guy who can hit in, in the mid to high 20s homers with an OPS in the mid 800s. It was it was getting there, but it was getting there slowly because of his tough start. And then this really sets him back. He does kind of look, or he did kind of look, 
in L.A. Like he was trying to pull everything, like he was trying to get out of the slump by hitting a double or hitting a homer. There were, you know, a lot of pop-ups and fly balls to the right side, uh, but not because he was late and hitting balls to the opposite field, but because he was so early that he was pulling off a lot of them. So, I mean, I, I do think the good news is that at least in this, in this pretty tough hitless streak for him where, you know, since the San Diego finale, he's gone one for 26. And that's obviously really not good. At least he's walked a, a good handful of times to help them, you know, stay on base a little bit. But yeah, they're going, they're going to need it to turn around from him. I have faith that it will come, but this is about as bad of a stretch as he's had all year, even worse than, you know, some of the stuff that he was doing at the start of the season. On the flip side of that, uh, Whit Merrifield, where would the Blue Jays be, Ben, without Whit Merrifield? Uh, they would be in a tough spot. Whit, Whit Merrifield has been Mr. Consistency for them this year. And I really think uh, that as the offense is starting to turn, as it has really not just on this road trip, I think for the last couple weeks, that he becomes more and more important because you're getting more extra base hits out of guys like Matt Chapman and... Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette and yesterday from Whit Merrifield specifically who who you know has five home runs this month which is pretty ridiculous I wouldn't expect that to to keep going but uh, it has been you know a bounce back year for Merrifield in a pretty big way he's starting to put up close to career numbers for the Blue Jays and I, I think that you know when we talk about the trade deadline coming up, we have to look back to last year's deadline and think that this was such a good deal for the Blue Jays. It took Merrifield a little bit of time to get comfortable last season, uh, but this year, you know, he, he was an all-star and deservedly so, and, and he continues uh, to mean more and more to the Blue Jays, it feels like, as the season goes on. Yeah, it'd be nice if there was another one of those moves in the holster uh, for Ross Atkins where you can not only benefit this run, but maybe uh, another one to come because there are going to be some changes. Those changes may include Whit Merrifield, who can, you know, uh, walk as a free agent and make a lot of money maybe despite being, you know, a little advanced in age. It may not be a coincidence that he's having such a great season uh, in a potential contract year. When you look into his future, I mean, it might be tough for the Blue Jays to retain him. Do you think he's going to be able to sign a pretty sizable deal somewhere because of this season? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Witt is, you know, 34 years old this season, uh, but he obviously is having a great year and, and he's, you know, incredibly quick and showing his ability to play defense at multiple positions. He has a mutual option for $18 million next year, which means both sides have to agree. I believe I heard Show Ali say that if the Blue Jays, uh, don't agree to it. They have to pay him $500,000, which sounds pretty cool for Witt. Uh, like 500000 just to not play for the Blue Jays on that contract. Um, so I, I think the mutual option is a possibility, although $18 million for one year is a lot, as good as he uh, is, or as well as he is playing for the Blue Jays. I do think for him a possibility is that he's going to be able to get a little bit more length in a deal than a traditional 34, 35-year-old guy who's a position player whose game is predicated on a lot of speed might get. Uh, I think there's a chance for him that the Blue Jays or someone else could offer him something like three years, 10 to 12 million per year. It doesn't sound like a terrible deal. I mean, it is a risk, I think, signing 
someone who's, you know, 34, 35 to a multi-year deal. But uh, if the 18 million isn't something that he and the Blue Jays want to do, I, I do think that he could end up getting a contract that's like 30 to 35 million for the next couple of years. And, you know, he guarantees that even if something goes wrong over the next couple of seasons, that he'll still be making pretty good money. He could convince me he's younger than 34. He's looking pretty young and spry out there. Uh, not that yeah. the Blue Jays should put, uh, you know, serious term in front of him, uh, but he's uh, looking like he's still got a plenty left in the tank. Uh, okay, so my concern was that with Vladdy starting to turn the corner just a little bit, that it would coincide with Bo Bichette dipping a little bit in his performance because it seems like these two can't mash at the exact same time. I don't know what the reason for that is, uh, but it just seems like that is the case. But, you know, Bo Bichette, of course, has has uh, you know found his stroke, rediscovered that stroke uh, good series after sitting out, I believe it was the opener. Um, are you confident that these two important Blue Jays are going to have their best or be near their best at the same time when it matters the most? Yeah, I think so. I think in a way, the fact that it hasn't happened yet just makes it more likely that it's going to start happening now. I think we saw last year near the end of the season, both of them were hitting pretty well and the Blue Jays went on a bit of a run there. And obviously in 2021, Vladdy was just mashing the whole season and Bo had a good year uh, as well. So I think it's, it's almost like the, the inverse of 2021 in a way where, uh, you know, Bo had a, a very solid 2021 too, but now Bo has mashed for pretty much this whole season. He has that four game stretch, obviously that wasn't very good, but Vladdy's starting to hit really well too. And Bo's just been hitting the whole year. So if Bo continues to do what he's doing and Vladdy stays hot, like he has been for a couple weeks now, I mean, better part of a, of, a 24, 25 game stretch. He has been really good for the Blue Jays at the plate. I, I think that, you know, the Blue Jays will continue to put up a ton of runs. They averaged over six runs a game. Uh, what was it? Over the last five games they played, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Over the last five games they played, over six runs a game. Even if you take out the three extra innings runs that they scored in the opener against the Dodgers, they still averaged six runs per game. So, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that these two have done it a lot at a lot of different levels together, and, and there's a good chance that they'll uh, mash together again at the major league level as we get into the home stretch here. Ben, uh, last question for you, most important question. Um, do you believe in aliens? Uh, I do believe in aliens. Uh, not to be, like, anti the people who don't believe in aliens, but I think it's, like, pretty <laughs> Pretty did you see yesterday's news? Aliens with the size of the universe. I did not hear yesterday's news. <gasps> what happened with aliens? The... Ben's all Blue Jays all the yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. If I know. He's you're, not an You're too busy. But basically, Z-ding. U.S. Congress confirmed the existence of uh, non-human biologics that they had retrieved. And basically, there's whistleblowers coming out saying that there's alien life. So I just go get on Google, take a minute away from, I mean, today's an off day, so you don't have to do too much. You can go research the (laughs) aliens. Go far down the rabbit hole. And I'll be listening on your next call to see how you try to work that in there. All right. Well, I have to now assume that there's a possibility that Shohei Otani is an alien. And that's the reason that he can pitch and hit at that rate. See, I knew uh, you'd follow the mountain ball. Thank you for giving me that info. I'm definitely reading about that. Okay, go get some Googling done. Uh, We appreciate you joining us bright and early, and we're looking forward to your call on Friday night. Thanks so much, guys. Talk to you soon. That's Ben Shulman, Blue Jays broadcaster, Sportsnet 590. The fan, of course, will have the game Friday night. It is 
an Apple TV broadcast on the network. But we have the game. Sports at 590, the fan. Doesn't matter if Shohei's pitching or not because Kevin Gosman will be. And he is sometimes alien-esque in his performances too. There you go. You can give him some alien attributes. There you go. Might not be Shohei, but alien nonetheless. You had a point about the Detroit Tigers? Well, I mean, it was kind of a callback from our 6 a.m. hour when you said that Detroit was, what, the second smartest fan base? No, they were not up there, wasn't it? Because I, oh, no, 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 sir, they're middle of the pack. They're middle of the pack. Yeah. But Ben said, you know, you, you know what the weather is in Detroit mm-hmm. and you still have an they open-air ballpark known. and it's costing him the opportunity to call Shohei Otani game. It's too bad. Of course, which is a, a little uh, disappointing. So maybe they aren't so smart was my point. Okay, so right now um, the 2023 World Aquatics Championships happening over in Japan and our girl Summer McIntosh just won gold in the women's 200-meter butterfly, a world junior record. It's her first gold medal at these championships this time around with a two-minute race winning gold. Um, she won bronze earlier. I've been watching it, streaming it a little bit because it's a time She was like perfect. really disappointed with bronze yeah. too. That's when you know you're elite, when you're like angry. Yeah, uh, yeah that's pretty crazy. Uh, yeah, so she wins gold um, in the 200 meter butterfly. She defends that title. So that's happening right now. Uh, congrats to one of Canada's greatest. Let's do something to chew on. Brought to you by Great Canadian Meats. Yum, yum, yum. Um, okay, so We've been talking a little bit about Eric Carlson. Uh, we will talk to Nick Kiprios at 8 o'clock, and we can bring this up with him. But our guy, Frank Saravelli from Daily Face Off, reported yesterday um, that San Jose hasn't found a team willing to give them anything near their asking price. Quote, these teams have all essentially sat back and said, hey, call us in August. You let us know when you want to talk and we can pick up this again, but we're not giving you anything significant. And we had heard that it was the Penguins, the Hurricanes, the Kraken, and the Maple Leafs that Eric Carlson himself came forward and said he had been having discussions with. Uh, This gives me some hope. This gives me some hope because the main sticking point has been what? Money, right? Money. And retaining money. If you're the Sharks ownership, you want to pay for someone else to have Eric Carlson Mm -hmm. for four years. That's a bit of a stretch, right? Despite what might be best for the franchise. So if it is not just about retained salary and instead about what's coming back, that you can compromise about. You normally can't compromise with, with retained money. I guess you can a little bit. But it's easier to compromise about assets coming back and forth. So this gives me... Some hope. Thank you, Frank. Maybe the price is a little bit more attainable. Um, We'll chat with Kipper at 8 o'clock. We also had news on Matt Murray yesterday, confirmation that he will be going on LTIR. Maple Leafs still a little bit over the cap, but still a much easier uh, look into this upcoming season when Matt Murray is no longer going to be on the ice for the Maple Leafs. The Sebastian Ajo deal officially announced and how that might influence or not William Nylander, all that to go on with Kipper at eight. But we'll have Andy Petrello join us after the break. A tale of two halves. Canada coming out quite poorly to start yesterday's must-win game at the World Cup. They find a way to be resilient and have a comeback win. So why the slow start and how do they replicate the second half with Australia? And we'll be giving away concert tickets in the next block. So stay tuned. That's for Smashing Pumpkins. So stay tuned for the code word. All of that to come on the Fan Morning Show with Justin and Ailish. We're set 590, the fan. 
smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back on the Fan Morning Show. Sports at 590, the fan, Justin Cuthbert and Ailish Forfar. Canada, I believe, I surmise, saved its World Cup yesterday. With a win over Ireland, a gutsy win, one that started off with an Olympic go from Katie McCabe. They were down <laughs> early. They clawed back in. It might have been an, a fortunate bounce that kind of turns things around, but uh, put the ball on net and good things may in fact happen. To discuss that and more, let's bring in our next guest, Andy Petrillo, host of One Soccer and CBC Sports. Good morning, Andy. How are we doing today? I'm great. How are you? Uh, we are doing pretty good. Uh, yesterday's game, uh, a fortunate bounce, but, uh, you know, uh, you put the ball in net, as I mentioned, good things may happen. Do you think that kind of rescued Canada's tournament at the World Cup? Uh, the win, for sure. Uh, there was no, I mean, you can't say that there would have been no way they could advance um, if they were going into that Australia game with just two points. If they lost, oh boy, that would have been really tough. So, they put themselves in a much better position, having four points going into that final game. Um, you know, I mean, it just, I, I don't even know what I would have said, <laughs> to be quite honest with you, if they didn't pull off the win. I think it would have left a lot of people speechless. Um, but because uh, it probably would have left us all speechless as well, be, because if they didn't score, right? They had that nil-nil draw against Nigeria. You're going up against now against a World Cup uh, debutante, which it's not like we haven't seen a surprise already. Philippines also making the World Cup debut ended up shocking Norway. You didn't want Canada, though, to be part of that story. Uh, but you're right. Like, who cares about the lucky bounce? An own goal, you have to do something to create that. But I think what also really saved that game was Bev Priestman's substitutions. Um, she is brave with those substitutions. She did it at Tokyo in the gold medal game. Didn't care that she yanked out Janine Becky and yanked out Quinn at halftime, made those changes. We know how that game went. Uh, and then here she did again. She brought in Christine Sinclair, Sophie Schmidt, and Shalina Zadorsky. And Sophie Schmidt and, and Christine Sinclair, I think, really changed things. And off they go. Now they're feeling a lot better against Australia. Yeah, it was kind of a tale of two halves, as, a, as I was saying earlier in the show. Uh, that first half, they looked like they were underwater. Early goal obviously doesn't help with a three minutes in. Um, but I think the substitutions, as you mentioned, really made a big difference. But why this low start? Was it just the wrong lineup? Was it wrong, the wrong fit? Um, getting down early, not maybe having the experience on the pitch to be able to turn that around? Because certainly the second half looked like a different Team Canada. Yeah, I mean, you also have to give the opponents credit. I mean, even right now, and this is where it's going to make things very spicy for that final group stage game. Nigeria currently is beating Australia 2-1. Wow. If Nigeria ends up winning this match, that's Nigeria and Canada on four points with Australia on three. Oh, boy. Like, that's going to be, that's <laughs> going to be a fun one um, in that final group stage game. But, like, I think you have to give credit to Nigeria you know, even though they're the 40th-ranked team, they did give Canada even some problems last year when they played them in friendlies. It was a win and a draw for Canada. So you have to give them credit. Um, but again, the Canadians have struggled with scoring. That's been the narrative going in. So for a lot of us, that actually wasn't a surprise that they were having a difficult time finding the back of the net because that's been their story. Uh, they just haven't had these clinical finishes against higher-ranked opponents. I mean, again, a little bit shocking. Again, Nigeria 40th, but you have to give them credit um, you know, they've, they've been turning things around that Nigerian squad. And then, you know, Ireland, this is a feisty team for sure. And I don't know, guys, sometimes 
you know, sometimes in the world of sport, you know it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You have problem scoring. People talk about your problem scoring. So then you just naturally end up having problem scoring, right? <laughs> so I don't know sometimes if they just need to get out of their, their own head. But that, that to me has been their biggest problem. I think Kaylin Sheridan, um, a lot of it stems from her. I think her feeling, her confidence permeates throughout the team. When you saw that Olympico goal go in, which is just absolutely beautiful, you know, they rally, they group, they regrouped, whatever. And then you, for me at least, I saw a switch flip with Kaylin Sheridan. I saw her be more confident. I saw her communicating more with her back line because that's Canada's identity is defense. And then, boom, it started pushing forward. And it just felt like, to your point, why did they look different in the second half? I think it boils down to confidence. That's the intangible in the world of sport that sometimes you can't really measure and it boiled down to confidence for me, but um, it's uh, it's it's going to still be dicey in that in that final group stage game, especially if Nigeria can pull off this full three points. Uh, Nigeria apparently now up three one, which certainly throws oh, no. a wrench into into everything. I, I think we were just assuming that uh, you know Canada would be in a spot where you didn't have to worry about that, but uh, yeah, things are going to be. Uh, a little bit more spicy, as you put it uh, now. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the goal-scoring issues or perceived goal-scoring issues. I guess only one goal are earned through their own merit so far uh, in this tournament. Uh, it, it, do you think that's some of the, you know, a willingness or a want to turn things over? I mean, maybe looking past uh, or trying to look to the future with Christine Sinclair obviously being near the tail end of her career. I think they want to sort of turn it over. They want to believe in Jordan Heidema uh, being at the front of that line and being a potential uh, star. But it just seems like, you know, you mentioned the subs and how important the subs were that this eagerness to maybe turn things over might be a little short-sighted because the people that came on were mostly veterans and they were really good. And of course, Christine Sinclair, despite being a little bit older, uh, it still seems to find her in the box. And and if she was able to convert on a couple of these chances, this is an entirely different story. Is this a reminder or has this been a reminder that, you know, turning things over, trying to look to the next generation, maybe not so fast? Yeah, I think we all realized that pretty early on. Because to your point about Jordan Heidema, she was scoring goals at the youth level. She has scored goals at every level of youth for Canada. And then, of course, she became the first Canadian female to make the jump straight out of high school to go play pro when she signed with PSG. So I think rightfully there was a lot of hype around Heidema because she had shown it and she had proved that she could score. Then uh, it just wasn't happening. It was happening against teams who were ranked 30th or higher, but it wasn't typically happening with those top 20 teams. She wasn't scoring against them. So then, you know, at the you know, CONCACAF W Championship, that tournament, which typically acts as a World Cup and Olympic qualifier, she'd go in and score goals against, like, St. Kitts and Nevis, Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, okay, fine. But are you going to score those goals against Jamaica? Are you going to score those goals against Mexico? Are you going to score those goals against USA? So we started to realize, like, okay, something's, something's kind of happening here, right? Now she's, she's changed things up. She realized she wasn't getting the playing time in PSG. Things have turned for her NWSL-wise. As far as her movement in the box, I think she's looking so much better. Of course, she needs that finish that needs to come. But I think, to your point, people started to realize there's never going to be the next Sinclair. There's always just going to be um, a new team, a new identity. Like, stop trying to replace her. In some ways, that's like saying, who's going to be the next Connor McDavid? What are you doing? Like, at some point, let's just chill. Okay, that's not going to happen. Um, and, I, and I think what's a little bit, I would say, disappointing is that the W uh, CONCACAF Championship last summer, which qualified them, for this World Cup. It really was scoring by committee for Canada. I think Jesse Fleming actually ended that tournament as the top goal scorer. 
Um, and right behind her was Julia Grosso. Like a lot of the midfield ended up scoring for Canada. And you thought, okay, here we go. I guess you want to see the forwards get a little bit more involved and, and Leon and, you know, Prince and, and Deanne Rose. But like at the same time, you're thinking, okay, the attack has now spread out. Because in some ways, as brilliant as Christine Sinclair is, you can always find a knock on something, pros and cons. And the con was you really just only had one person, one outlet. Now it felt like Canada was spreading it out, and that could make them a far more dangerous force. But then just like that, it's like the scoring has dried up again. And, uh, you know, what is that? Is that lack of quality? Is that the tactics not putting them in the proper position to succeed? Are they not, you know, getting into the box quick enough? Are they holding on to the ball that split second too much? I mean, you really analyze the tape to kind of look at it. Um, but I think it's a combination of a lot of those things. And then at the end of the day, it gets into your head and off you go. You're done, right? So Adriana Leon, I, I feel like, does have a little bit more of the ability to break free. Didn't get the playing time with Manchester United. Made the move to NWSL. Is not getting the playing time either, which is really disappointing because last year she was scoring goals for the national team. But you see, I wonder if that'll open up the floodgates for her. I really hope so. Uh, chatting with Andy Petrillo. Uh, you mentioned, you know, we're talking about Christine Sinclair uh, uh, just a little bit there. Uh, what do you think her role is now at this World Cup specifically? Because uh, she comes on in the second half. I don't know if that's something that's going to be continued. I don't know if that's just a little bit of load management in the group play. Uh, clearly she's getting some chances. She hasn't taken those chances yet, but just being not even a decoy, but just being out there. I mean, you have to mark Christine Sinclair. So do you see her has what, like, what do you see her role as moving forward in this tournament? How do you think Bev Priestman will best use her? I'm not surprised to see her coming off the bench. And I wouldn't be surprised again if she does that against Australia because, you know, Jesse Fleming just plays that number 10 role that which Christine has kind of adopted in the latter part of her career. She averages about 60 minutes with Portland Thorns anyway. So this is a player that doesn't play the full 90 anymore. And I don't think it's a bad idea. See, I, you know, well, I'm a little bit older than you guys, I'm pretty sure. But like in my day, coming off the bench and being a substitute, oh no, like it was considered such a bad thing. But now... The substitutes, we call them impact players. Mm -hmm. And when they do come on, there is a real tactical change. There's a real you know, reason for that. And it's not necessarily a, a slight anymore to be a player who comes off the bench because you can make things happen. You can really change a game. So I wouldn't be surprised if she's you know, continued to be used that way. And to your point, though, about kind of passing the torch, doesn't she kind of have to? I mean... Canada's if, if we're relying on a 40-year-old in many ways, and I'm not saying that 40-year-olds can't be in great shape and, and, and still be flying high. I mean, but like at the same time, you know, you look at Marta, who's also at her sixth World Cup. Now, mind you, yes, she's coming back from an ACL injury, but she's a bit player for Brazil. Megan Rapino, late 30s, you know, she's announced this is her final World Cup. She's a bit player for the Americans. These are all people that are within Christine Sinclair's age group class era. Like, to me, it's just not a surprise when a player like that, even though they've been magnificent for their career, they're icons. This is Father Time, who's undefeated. And when you get slower, that's just inevitable. So your coach has to put you in the positions to succeed. And I just, I just think we're in trouble if we're putting all our eggs in that 40-year-old basket where it's just been so obvious there's a slowdown. So again, if she comes off the bench against Australia, not surprised at all. And I don't think that's a bad thing. 
Yeah, yesterday we see the the first time she doesn't make an appearance, uh, sorry, a starting lineup appearance um, at the World Cup, and, and that means that Jesse Fleming was back in Canada's starting lineup after missing the opener due to injury. So what did what did the return of Jesse Fleming do to this team? How did she change the way that it was constructed and, and moving forward, how much of an essential part would she be of Canada's success? Yeah, I mean, she is, like, again, that Christine Sinclair 2.0, though, right? Like, so she's, she's fast, um, she's clinical, she's creative. She has energy for days. She's the one they rely on for the set pieces. She's the one who takes the free kicks and takes the corners. And she just has such a vision on the field, seeing open players, being able to get the ball through to them. Um, There's just a crispness as well to her. And she has grown exponentially with her time at Chelsea and just the trophies that she's won there as well. Um, But, yeah, like she's, she's somebody who's pretty much involved in a lot of those plays. And uh, Bev has acknowledged she's a player that should be playing higher up the pitch in that number 10 role as opposed to a little further back in a defensive midfield role. That's where you, you know, have Quinn and you have Grosso and obviously you have Sophie Schmidt as well, who's announced this is her last World Cup and she looked great on that assist to Leon. So, you know, she's feeling good about herself. But Fleming, Fleming you just want higher up the pitch because, again, that's where they have their problems is scoring. So, you know, she uh, she can at least help provide the ball. Uh, people need to start finishing it. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised maybe if against Australia she takes a little bit more of those chances for herself. But uh, she, she can definitely, you know, change the complexion of a game with her creativity. Looking at this Canada team as a whole, Andy, uh, where do you consider it most deficient? Scoring. I mean, that's – I feel like this is just the, the nail we keep hammering. Um, they were brilliant at the Olympics on their defense, on the backs of their defense. They relied on penalty kicks, and it got the job done. But, you know, we keep, we keep saying the World Cup and the Olympics are different, and they are. You know, the, the, the Olympics, you have, few, you, have, you have fewer teams. You have uh, – it's a, it's a shorter competition. It's a little bit more of a sprint. Whereas the World Cup, as you can see, this is a marathon. There are 32 teams, right, for the first time. Mm. It's expanded to 32. And if you're not scoring goals, like you're not, you're not getting the job done. You see how quickly it can put you in a pickle. You didn't score a goal against Nigeria. That one ends up in a draw. You see what's happening right now between Nigeria and Australia. You see how not getting the full three points at the World Cup versus the Olympics puts you in a pickle. I believe they had one win in their three games at the Olympics in the group stage. They began with a draw, then they had a win, then they had a draw, right? Then when they go into the quarterfinals, right, like they have to go to penalty kicks against Brazil because they didn't score. Like it was nil-nil at the end of the game. And then against USA in the semifinals, they won, won nothing. That was off a Jesse Fleming penalty kick, right? It's like, so you, you see why people are having, you know, these types of conversations around the Canadian team. And good on the Canadian team for trying to turn it around and use it, you know, put it as a chip on their shoulder and use it as motivation. We're not getting respect. People say that that Olympic gold was a fluke. First of all, it wasn't a fluke. They earned that. Trust me, I watched it. Getting by on defense is hard. But you can see where the knocks are coming because they're not scoring goals. And um, that can be... 
that can uh, that can be to their detriment if they don't score goals against Australia. Okay, so let's look forward at Australia. Um, how do they replicate that second half of play? Um, and is there like a way that they can really exploit what Australia, well, we're watching them right now. They're down 3-1. Um, so maybe they're not in a good place Ooh. nonetheless. But um, how they can exploit and match up well against this team in their final uh, group stage game? Um, I, simple. I, I feel like maybe speed. I think Bev mm-hmm. has gotten the tactics right. I just wonder now if you change the personnel. And we've all been kind of, shooting the horn here of Chloe Lacasse and how she completely changes a game when she comes in based on her speed. Because one second she's in the middle of the pitch, the other second she's in the opposition's box, and I think that even <laughs> shocks the opposition. She has so much speed and she's able to keep the ball at her feet. So I wonder if you make that type of change. Uh, I wonder if you do try to put Haidema back in the middle just because of her height. Uh, Evelyn Vien, I really liked her as well, but I just didn't think she was strong enough that in that first half. I don't know if being a starter, the nerve, something got to her because she is class. But for some reason, it just wasn't there uh, yesterday. So I wonder if you put Haidema back in the middle with her height and you put Adriana Leon and Chloe Lacasse on either side of her. So some speed demons there. Um, and then I guess, do you start Sophie Schmidt? Because to your point, does experience help here? Um, you know, Do you put Sophie Schmidt in for Grosso? Because I think Quinn is still very electrifying with their defense and their passing, they were very much a part of that goal as well in the second half uh, with their work and getting it to Sophie Schmidt, who ultimately got it to Adriana Leon. So maybe those are some two changes I'm making. Put the speed up front with Chloe Lacasse and put the experience and that vision as well in the midfield behind, kind of slightly behind Jesse Fleming with Quinn and Sophie Schmidt. And then we keep our fingers crossed that Kadisha Buchanan's okay. She'll have a few more days of rest. We know she was dealing with an illness. I wonder if Bev took her off because she wasn't feeling good. Plus, she was on a yellow. Um, but if Kadisha's back in there with Vanessa Jill, then, you know, you just you don't touch that back line. Uh, but those are probably the two changes I would make. Uh, I may be putting you on the spot a little bit, but Sam Kerr, of course, from Australia, not available yet so far in this tournament. Uh, that would be a secret weapon for Australia. That would be maybe the trump card if she was able to play uh, against Canada. Have you heard anything on her status? No, the last thing that we had heard was that she could be a possibility for that game against Canada. Because, of course, why wouldn't she make a return against Canada? Um, but, uh, you know, if, I know it's hard to read into friendlies, but the Canadians neutralized her. You know, last year, again, they played two friendlies against Australia in Australia. They were both victories for Canada. Sam Kerr was part of those games. So they neutralized her. You know, it, it, they can do it. So if anything, they have to draw on that. Jesse Fleming is, is her teammate. Um, she, she knows her well. She's been playing with her a lot longer than Kadisha Buchanan has. But again, you have a lot of Chelsea players on uh, the Canadian team who would know her well. So they could probably exploit some of her weaknesses, which is obviously easier said than done. But again, they did it, right? They got to draw on that experience, draw on the fact that they played Australia uh, just to, you know, I think it was back in September. They neutralized her. And if they can do it then, they got to tell themselves that they can do it now. All right, Andy, last one for you. Uh, kind of zooming out more of World Cup um, in general. Has there been a best story for you that isn't revolving around Canada or their opponents, something that you've really enjoyed covering or following? Um, because it is full of great stories, uh, great debut, great uh, personal heartwarming things. Is there something that you've liked the most um, so far at the beginning of this tournament? Uh, well, I mean, you know, like I said, I can't believe that a World Cup debutant Philippines were able to pull off that victory, I think, over Norway. That, to me, was a big one. That was uh, a ton of fun to watch. 
I just, I mean, not that you ever wanted to, because Norway was my dark horse, so mm. thanks bunch norway but anyways uh you saw what it just meant to them it was it was pretty incredible um who's not watching brazil especially after that master class of goal scoring and you want to talk about pretty football that's pretty like even the men like that, that the men play that way that is just brazilian football um i just love it uh, linda casado of colombia you know 18 years of age you know overcome cancer and now she's the she's the first woman to play in an under-17, under-20, and now a senior wow. World Cup. And Colombia, you know, she scored in their opener as well. And yeah, there's, there's so many great storylines. I feel like there's um, a resurgence of youth here. Mm-hmm. Because as much as we love Megan Rapino, Marta, you know, Christine St. Clair, Ada Hegeberg, I was really excited about her coming back. She obviously left that, um, she didn't even start that second game against the Philippines for Norway because she ended up injuring herself. But it was great to see her back because we know she protested 2019 over equal pay. She's one of the best in the world, Ballon d'Or winner. As much as we love these older players, there's really this resurgence of the youth between Casado, um, Borges for Brazil, who scored those goals like early 20s, Sophia Smith, same thing with the United States, early 20s. The Canadian Jesse Fleming is really taking over there's there's just this resurgence of youth, which I think is really lovely, because if we're going to also you know have these conversations around the growth of the women's game, how it's getting better, getting stronger, put them on equal footing with the men, you have to know that the next generation is there. You have to know that you're developing something. And what I think has been pretty wonderful about this World Cup is that it shows they're there. The next generation isn't just coming it's here, and it's pretty incredible to watch. Yeah, it's super inspiring. Uh, lots of football to be played left um, here. Canada, a big match on Monday morning against Australia. Down 3-1 right now against Nigeria. So lots of intrigue going into next week. Andy, we appreciate you jump, jumping on, um, and we'll chat with you later down in the tournament. All right, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. That's Andy Petrillo, host of One Soccer and CBC Sport. And as we mentioned, this game is on right now in the 89th minute. And it's not looking good for Australia. No, it's not. We're going to have to be scrambling for tiebreakers soon here, at least tiebreaking scenarios. I believe a 3-1 victory for Nigeria would put them top of the group just on goal scoring Mm -hmm. alone. And I believe it would have Canada ahead of Australia, meaning if they drew in their final game, I think Canada would have the advantage there if the score holds at 3-1. But we should probably double check that. Yeah, this changed a lot of things. I think it felt pretty... uh, pretty confident that Australia would be able to get a win over Nigeria and if so I think that they would just already have catapulted themselves into the knockout stage if, but if, if it was the opposite if Australia was up yes, 3-1 you could you could get away with not having a result against Australia because you'd be mm-hmm. ahead of the other two teams now things have changed um all right well that was a great chat uh covering a little bit of a look around uh, the World Cup because there's lots of good stuff going on there. We do have Nick Kiprios after the break and Fred McGriff, Hall of Famer. Uh, Before we do that, we have tickets to give away. All week long and all summer long, we've been doing the Bud Stage Summer Concert Series giveaway. Today, we have tickets to give away for Smashing Pumpkins playing at Budweiser Stage on September 2nd. To enter, all you have to do is text the code word ROCKET to 595.90 right now. And if you don't win with us, you can secure your tickets at ticketmaster.ca. Be sure to tune in next week as we'll have more concert tickets to give away. Today's code word is ROCKET. 595.90, that's September 2nd, Smashing Pumpkins, a part of our Bud Stage Summer Concert Series. Doesn't slow down, Bud Stage, every it's night. Into September, like when you hear September concerts, you're like, oh my God, we're already... 
We're already there. We're headed to August. Um, the Blue Jays are not in action today. They had a nice, happy flight home after winning the series against the Dodgers over the last three days. They start their series against the Angels at 7 p.m. Kevin Gosman will start that one up. We'll have that on Sportsnet 590. The fan, of course, it is one of the Apple TV games, but you can listen live here on Sportsnet 590. The fan, 7 o'clock, first pitch. Let's finish our final hour of our Baby Friday with Nick Kiprios. We have a Matt Murray conclusion headed to LTIR for this upcoming season. How's that impact what the Maple Leafs might look to do to get that $2 million over the cap removed from the books? Nick Kiprios is next on the Fan Morning Show, Sportsnet 590 The Fan.